Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. I know my guest is a big hockey fan, and I grew up out near Philadelphia, and I moved back, so I was always a Flyers fan. But when I moved to L.A., I became a Kings fan. And I remember, God, it was like 15, 18 years ago, I would go to this one bar in Burbank with my two Norwegian friends, Benny and Bernie, and I would say, can you put on the Kings game? And this bartender, she would say, we don't watch hockey in L.A. So we would get pissed off. Well, a few years later, the Kings are in the Stanley Cup, and that bartender's wearing a uh, jersey. So anyway, I know he's a big he's a big fan, and you know him from Five for Fighting Wars, John Androzik, and and you know he has a lot going on. He's he's helping Ukraine out, and he's just he's more than a uh, great songwriter. He's a great individual because he's out there helping. And uh, so I want to say, how you doing today, man? Steve, thank you for the. Uh... The flyer commentary, you know, thanks to your flyers, we got Mike Richards and Jeff Carter to win <laughs> that 2012, well, 2012 Cup with Mike Richards and Carter in 14. And uh, yeah, we, I call the I call the flyers Kings East, and I think they call us Flyers West. I so did. We got a lot of love. We got a lot of love. <laughs> and I went, flyers. I went, I went to both parades. Actually, it's funny. My wife moved out from New Jersey with me, and she went to the second parade, and, you know, she, the Eagles won when we moved back, but she'd never been to a parade, and I remember the first parade, it wasn't that crazy, me and my buddy took the subway from uh, North Hollywood, and it was sort of empty, but then the second year, people you know who never watched hockey a day in their life were showing up, people were in jerseys, and you couldn't get on the subway, and it was just a hell <laughs> It was a beautiful thing for, for- for those of you who can't see our Zoom, you see my little Stanley Cup back there, the, my fake Stanley Cup signed by all the 2012 Kings. And uh, when we had our fires out here, the Woolsey fires, I had five minutes to grab whatever I could. So I took my microphones and that Stanley Cup. So <laughs> we Kings fans waited a long time for that. And uh, it was great to see our, our bucket list checked off. Well, you know, I, I didn't know that the five for fighting came from hockey. But tell me just how that arose that, that the record company said your name was too long and then you picked five for fighting which is just classic well it was interesting it was the late 90s and i just finished my first record on emi records so i was very excited and uh, they came to me and said you know it's it's the age of little affair boy bands grunge music the male singer songwriters dead to the world and you need need a band name uh kind of took me off guard a little bit and i just come from a king's game and of course, you being a hockey fan, know Marty McSorley was Wayne Gretzky's bodyguard, and Wayne got in a few fights. And uh, I'm sorry, Marty got in a few fights to, to protect Wayne. And for for those of your listeners who are not hockey fans, uh, in hockey you get a penalty for fighting. They call it five minutes for fighting. You go in the box, you're a bad boy. Five for fighting. And so when the record company said, "Hey, you need a band name," and I just come from this this hockey game, I sarcastically said. Uh, fine how about five for fighting expecting them to hate it and they're like we love it and i'm like you guys are nuts it sounds like i should be opening for metallica and i'll tell you steve the first couple years of five for fighting you know you take any gig you can you know you're a young songwriter uh, they book me into these like heavy metal shows and i'd show up with my keyboard and play superman and there'd be people moshing <laughs> to superman it was so surreal but uh, the, the, the silver lining is that I've played some incredible sporting events, you know, all-star games, Monday Night Football, Daytona 500, um, the Kings-Ducks outdoor game uh, at, at, at Dodger Stadium. Uh, and that probably never would have happened if it was John Androsic. So five for fighting, 
certainly has a wonderful silver lining. Well, I actually saw you at Irvine Meadows in 2002. Wow. It was wow. uh, Ryan Adams. Jewel fell off a horse and broke her arm, so she wasn't <laughs> on the show. It was That's Cheryl right. Crow, the Goo Goo Dolls, you, and there might have been one more act, but I still remember that because you were... I was on the grass, and you had the big piano, and it's just so funny how you, I have a vivid memory of that now. I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I boy, I, I'd forgotten about that, but I remember Jewel uh, kind of breaking her arm. We actually became friends after that and wrote a couple of songs together. But yeah, no, it was uh, it was kind of the last wave of the music business. You know, Superman uh, kind of hit 2000, of course, with uh, 9-11 and the concert for New York. It kind of did something nobody could have imagined, especially me. But uh, but there I was, you know, playing with some of these uh, great bands and and uh, had a lot of fun back then. You know, it was it was it was new. It was it was surreal. I was a, you know, 15 year overnight success. I didn't have success till, till very late. I was my late 20s, early 30s, which is very rare in the music business to have success that late. So I uh, never took it for granted, still don't, and um, luckily the stars aligned, and uh, those are some good memories. I toured with the Goo Goo Dolls. That was one of my first big tours, and it was a lot of fun to, to hang with John and the boys. Now, tell me what the 9-11 concert meant for you, because I remember when that happened, and me being from New Jersey, I had my brother in Philadelphia, and I remember I was really sick, and I woke up, I was living in in a little studio in Burbank, and I saw the second tower go down, and I tried to get on the phones, you know, and I called everyone, and you couldn't get on the phones, and my brother then got through and said, you know, your niece is fine, and then later I found out people from the college I went to passed on. It was such a impacted us on the East Coast, even though I was living in the West really, really hard. What was it like for you to actually, one, get asked to do that, and then just the song just made such a damn impact? I mean, explain your feelings about that, just how proud you must be but also sad a little bit yeah i was in europe uh i was in england on 9 11 and i did exactly what you did when that second tower went down i got on the phone trying to call all my friends in new york my record company was in new york my publishing company was in new york a lot of friends there couldn't get through um and of course we were kind of stranded in in the uk for seven, eight days. I mean, people forget looking up into the sky and seeing no airplanes for a week. So surreal. And I didn't realize what Superman was doing until I got back. Uh, I remember landing at O'Hare, literally kissing the tarmac. And my friends were saying, you know, a lot of the organizations, CNN, Fox, are using your song to recognize the heroes that ran into the Twin Towers. Um, so that alone was kind of jolting. But then my 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 good friend Rick Krim, who ran VH1 at the time, called me and he says, we're putting together this concert. Paul McCartney's leading it. Look, your song is like becoming one of the songs. Would would you like to play? And and I, I was kind of stunned. I said, of course, you know, expecting to be, <laughs> you know, in the first hour with all the bands nobody knew. And I remember getting to Madison Square Garden. Of course, I'm nervous. And, and you know, I'm a young kind of songwriter just getting used to hearing my song on the radio. I remember flipping through the schedule and nothing, nothing, nothing. And there's like one or two pages left. And I'm like, oh, good. They forgot about me. I can just watch the show, you know, <laughs> meet some families. And then, you know, there it is, you know, Mellencamp, Fight for Fighting, you know, John Androsic, uh, you know, Elton, you know, Billy McCartney. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Um, but it was surreal, you know, to, to play. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, story not I haven't told very much is 
you might remember watching that event. It was kind of chaotic. There's a lot of technical problems. It was live. It was thrown together. People's mics were not working. And when I sat down to play uh, on live television for 26 million people, uh, my ears uh, were not working, you know, our monitors. So somebody, I forget who was introducing me, was filling, filling. Finally, they came on and I go, I hit the first chord and 100 decibels of white noise in each ear. I couldn't hear a thing. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I can stop and start over or I can just sing by Braille. And, and I, I looked out into Madison Square Garden and there's this huge union worker, probably been down at Ground Zero for a month, two beers in each hand. And I started singing Superman and he started singing with me. And I, and I looked at him and he started crying and, and we just kind of sang together. And, and um, it, was, it was surreal. It, it was something that uh, I still can't come to grips with what the song became. But I was really, um, I was really blessed to have a song that mattered and to meet those folks and be able to grieve with their families and know the firefighters still to this day I, I communicate with and and uh, develop a relationship with our troops and and the last thing I'll mention is it really taught me that night why music could matter. You know, we talk about you know chart positions, fame, fortune, record sales, they're all relevant. But watching the Who blow the roof off Madison Square Garden and those people who probably haven't cried or screamed or hugged in, in a month, they were so kind of devastated, to release that, uh, that emotion uh, is something I'll never forget. And it's something that's carried with me and probably influenced some of the other things that I've done. I want to talk about some of them, but I want to ask you, Superman, where did that song come from? I mean, where what was your original thought process? Because... Everyone, you know, it's so I wrote a play in Hollywood years ago. It was about a guy talking to a mouse. And that's what it was. And there was a kid, and some guy's like, oh, so it was the play, the guy's conscience. And I'm like, no, it's just the <laughs> guy talking to the mouse. Where did that song come from, and what was your intent for it at first? And how do you, why do you think that it ended up becoming this somewhat of an anthem? Yeah, I wish I had a great story. I mean, like so many artists, I was, you know, very frustrated. Uh, woe is me. Just wanted to be heard. So that it's not easy to be me um, was kind of me at the time. It's a song I couldn't write now. I've learned in the last, geez, 25 years, it's actually pretty easy to be me. But, you know, as a young artist hitting the wall, feeling frustrated, you could see how someone might write that song. Um, of course, the beautiful thing about music is whatever your intent was to write a song, well, it doesn't matter when it gets out there. People take it and apply it to their lives in the way they use it. And it was amazing to see how Superman found its legs even before 9 11 uh the record company didn't want to put it out radio didn't want to play it uh the piano was not on the radio in 2000 it wasn't 1975 where the piano owned the radio there was no piano on the radio R radio stations it's too slow it's too deep and uh it almost never happened there are a few radio stations that stuck with it to got it to the tipping point but i think you know superman's really about our innate humanity and that that uh we're not perfect. Uh, we can't be everything for everybody. And I think a lot of us try to do that. And I, I think Superman, uh, what's the first line of Superman? I can't stand a fly, right? Who wouldn't want to fly? There's a lot of songs about Superman, but this one is about Superman not wanting that burden. And so I think a lot of folks, um, a lot of folks recognize that, especially older folks. The label called me when Superman started working and said something very strange is happening. Old people are buying your record. 
And by old people, they mean people in thir their 30s and 40s, right? Because, uh, <laughs> you know, kids buy records. So why are these adults buying these records? And, you know, talking to, to, to people over the last 20 years, I think a lot of it is that, is that I really related to your song. And, and I really, you know, uh, I just do the best I can. And, and, and so I think to this day, um, it's found its way and, and, and still resonates, which is frankly amazing and pretty humbling. Well, you know, you said it took you your 15-year overnight success, you were. Yeah. What What made you want to get into music, and, and what made you stick with music? Because it, it's got to be hard. You know, just tell me. Well, my mom was a piano teacher, so she started me very young, at two years old, and I always kind of had the dream of being a songwriter musician. I, I, I loved the Beatles, of course. I loved the piano players, uh, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Prince, the Who growing up, and my mom was very wise when I was 13. I had the basics of the piano, and I didn't want to practice anymore, but she let me quit, and so I'm like, now it's fun, and now I'm writing songs, and now I bought a mixer, and now I bought a TAC half-inch recorder, and now I'm going to college. I'm going to move my studio into my dorm, and so it was always kind of my dream, And uh, but at the end of the day, I think the success really comes from something that has nothing to do with talent. It was just pure perseverance. I was going to go off the cliff. I was going to go till there was nobody that would take my call, nobody that would show up, you know, at the 8121 room on, you know, sunset. Um, and uh, and luckily for me, I had three or four people who were very supportive in the industry. Uh, one who became my wife, Carla Berkowitz, a music publisher. Rick Krim, as I said, who ran VH1. Uh, Greg Latterman, who started Aware Records. Greg Wattenberg, who produced my first record. So I, I had a, a core team of supporters that, that really got me over the hump. But at the end of the day, it was a combination of work ethic, you know, luck, perseverance, and the stars aligning um, when, when songs like that were, were relevant. It was still a singer-songwriter age. Uh, There's a lot of songwriters doing, doing, doing well. So uh, all those things had to come together. Do you ever play the Coconut Teaser? Remember that place? Of course, I went to see my buddies, the River Dogs, at the Coconut Teaser. Well, the eighty-one twenty-one room, yeah, was below the Coconut Teaser. It was the little coffee house there. I wasn't couldn't sell enough tickets for Coconut Teaser, so I'd be the guy underneath. That after the big show, when he wanted to come down and grab a beer, there'd be you know a dude with a piano and five people there. So that was me. But uh, yeah, I miss those days. Sunset, the Rainbow Room, Gazaris. <laughs> it was it was uh, quite the scene. I want to talk more about your earlier career but i want to talk about okay. this this is you know this is pretty incredible i mean it's something that you know as i said you're you're trying to make a difference and you started out with uh, blood on my hands so it's not something yeah. you're it's not something it's new to you and i think it goes all the way back to september 11th you've been involved in this thing tell me about how can one man save the world come about yeah so it, you know, it's, it's a song about Zelensky, Ukraine, and, and the war, of course, but it really started in Afghanistan. Uh, you mentioned Blood in My Hands. I'd, I'd written Blood in My Hands about a year ago. We're coming up on the, the year anniversary. And through that song, um, I became embedded with many of the groups that were rescuing American citizens and Afghan allies in Afghanistan. Uh, the song kind of became a voice for Afghan veterans who were so uh, angry and felt betrayed that we left their brothers in arms there. And I was actually getting emails from people trapped because of the song. I didn't know what to do. So I embedded with some of these groups. One was called Save Our Allies. Uh, they rescued 12,000 people in 10 days, incredibly heroic. 
group that actually have a documentary called Send Me, Send Me coming out that kind of illustrates that. And then when the war in Ukraine broke out, again, I just felt this kind of, I don't know, I don't know if it's an obligation or just this need to write about this historic event. I think we're in, we're in such historic times, generational times. And when Zelensky turned down our plane ticket and said, send me some stingers, I'm like, this guy's different. So I kind of just wrote, can one man save the world very quickly? Uh, I recorded it, put it out piano vocal because frankly, it was the time I didn't know if he'd survived the night and put it out there. And uh, even though it recognizes Zelensky and the Ukrainians, it's really about us. It's like, you know, do we support these people or not? We've seen this movie before, you know, World War II, appeasement and, and being involved with our troops for 20 years. I was so concerned about uh, the expansion of the war and I didn't want our troops fighting in Eastern Europe in a year or two. So I wrote it and uh, it went out and, you know, like songs, songs, people like it, people don't. But I was going on a string quartet tour and I needed to arrange strings for the song so we could play it in my tour and sit in the back of the van. I thought, why don't I go to Poland and play the song with the Polish orchestra? Poland's been so amazing in this war, taking 4 million refugees, just incredible. So I reached out to my Save Our Allies folks who had relationships uh, in Poland, operating in Ukraine, and suggested this idea. They said, we'll get back to you. They called me a few days later, said, how would you like to go to Ukraine and play the song with the Ukrainian orchestra? Which again, kind of blew my mind. I didn't know they, they existed and they frankly didn't. They were scattered across the country. But long story short, you know, a month later, I found myself outside of Kyiv in the rubble of the Antonov airport playing with this incredible Ukrainian orchestra, Can One Man Save the World, in front of the symbol of Ukrainian independence, their biggest cargo plane in the world, world the Maria, that Putin destroyed at the beginning of the war. I think a very fitting location. So it was surreal. It was humbling. It was inspiring. I wish every American could sit where I saw, sat and meet those people because I think they might have a different uh, impression of, of what's really going on over there, which is people truly fighting for their survival. What is it like you're going into a country, you know, it's funny, we take a lot of things for granted here. Three years ago, yeah. me and my wife were on our honeymoon in Croatia and our, yeah. our, our Uber driver was saying how when he was younger, because his arm was all ripped up and he said his house got bombed and he, the next door neighbor got bombed with his uncle and his uncle and his dad passed away. But he was like, you know, you just got to live on. And over here, we don't ever think about that. And when you go over there and you go, holy crap, you know, this is like, this guy went through this. What is it like for you when you go over there and you're sitting in a, a site that was just recently, you know, as you said, rubble? Well, look. If, if I said I wasn't scared, I'd be lying. I mean, you're going into a war zone. We see every day, you know, Russia does not discriminate between civilian and military targets, and missiles are landing in Kiev, blowing up malls. And uh, the trip over there took 48 hours. There was hardly any fuel. So we literally walked across the border for a mile with our suitcases. It was like a time warp because the trains we were on were like 1950 trains, all the weaponry that was destroyed, the Russian tanks that were blown up around me. World War II-type military equipment. When we got to our hotel in Kiev, the first thing we were told is here is the uh, evacuation plan and here's, here's the bunker you go to when the air raid siren goes off. And you could certainly feel the weight uh, of people living under that. Uh, we didn't sleep very much, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, but I kept thinking to myself, you know, I get to leave in four or five days. I get to go. These people either cannot go if you're a, a of age male or 
you're choosing not to go. And it just gave me such respect for, for the fortitude of these people. Look, in Eastern Europe, they have a memory. Their grandparents suffered under the Soviet Union. Some of their parents suffered. So this is not new to them. Um, but every member of the orchestra either had someone that they lost, somebody missing, or somebody on the front. So our interpreter was this 20-year-old bartender, um, female, beautiful girl who decided to join the army. It's the same age as my daughter. So you know, when you, when you go there and you meet them and you see what's happening and you see the atrocities, I agree with you. I think, I think we are a little sheltered, a little naive about uh, the cost of freedom. And that's why, you know, what I really wanted to do is create a culture front on this war, a collaboration between American artists, Ukrainian artists, uh, because we haven't seen that in this war. We haven't seen uh, musicians coming together like Live Aid, Sun City, Concert for New York, to stand up for freedom. We've seen some people going over there taking a picture with Zelensky, but uh, that was really my, my goal and still my goal. But uh, it, was, uh, it was exhausting, it was inspiring, probably every emotion you can imagine. Um, and uh, credit to my pals, Save Our Allies, who made it happen. Their relationships with Zelensky and the ministry were why we were there and why we're able to film in this hollowed ground. So uh, all of this is because of them and, and all of the proceeds of the video and the song are, are going to Save Our Allies to continue their work over there. Now, have you reached out to people to try to set up, because I know you were aiming, as you said, aiming for some kind yeah. of concert. Have you reached out to people? Because, you know, I hear different things. Like, I know um, Mike Peters from The Alarm and Slim Jim Fan, they all went up on top of, like, one of the mountains, and they found out that they're not going to a hotel, and they actually made it happen. What is? Have people been getting back to you, or have people not been getting back to you? What's going on? Because it probably is... Scary for some people, but then there's obviously some people that want to do it, and their management's like, "Oh, you can't do that." I mean, what is what has been going on with you as you try to reach out to people? Well, we want to do it in Poland because uh, I think Poland uh, deserves the spotlight, uh, as as for reasons I mentioned. And just yesterday, actually, we we were exchanging emails with some of the Polish ambassadors. So part of the issue is finding a site, a location, because. Before I make the, the official ask, you know, the first thing anybody's going to say is, where is it, when is it? Who's producing it? Um, there are some people who have expressed interest. There are some people who have already written songs. You know, uh, Pink Floyd, half of Pink Floyd <laughs> wrote, <laughs> wrote a song with a Ukrainian rock star. Um, uh, you know, uh, Sting, Bono went there. Um, so there, there are people, Pearl Jam put out a statement. So uh, we're still in the process of trying to lock down the site. I have some feelers out there. Some folks have expressed support, but it's tough. Uh, it, it's a big lift. Um, people are so kind of focused on other things, uh, especially in Poland. But, but my argument is, look, humanitarian aid comes in many forms. And we've seen how music can permeate borders in ways other mediums can't. And if we have this large concert with all the global rock stars and musicians and Ukrainian bands and Polish bands, the Russian people will see that. And if we can coordinate it around the World Cup, where their soccer team's not playing, this propaganda that they're, that they're being told they're the heroes and that the Ukrainians are Nazis, uh, it may make a difference in this war. So I'm not giving up. Uh, as I said yesterday, we're, we're having conversations. I wish there was somebody with a higher profile than mine that could pull it together. But I do think I do think if we get get the site uh, and the date, 
that the artists will rally. And uh, I'll, I'll keep you in the loop, and, and we're thinking positive about it. Good. Now, I want to get back to your music career, because it interests me. Yeah. That, you know, you, it's, it's, I mean, that's part of your career, but it's because you're in L.A., and you're a singer-songwriter, and you're grinding, and you're grinding, and, and you're, as you said, you, people will believe in you. When did you finally get your first record deal? Was it easy for you, or were you, I mean, it took a while, or what happened to you for you to get that first deal? Well, again, I wrote hundreds of songs, pitched everybody. Um, it, you know, it, it was, you know, it's, it's such a queer, a, a strange, you know, collection of miracle moments. Um, my wife, who became my publisher, um, well, became my publisher, then my wife, was a very successful executive at, at uh, EMI Publishing. And um, she was over at Motown pitching songs to Motown. And my girlfriend at the time was a secretary at Motown and was playing my songs. And, and Carla Burke said, who is that? And, oh, it's some guy, my secretary's boyfriend. Nothing's going on with him, <laughs> which led her to go into Melrose and Vine and seeing me at a piano bar. Um, but it was really, you know, writing tons of songs, knocking on a thousand doors, playing every gig even if you had to pay to play um and then once i had some people like carla invested it was still tough it took two years uh passed on by everybody good songwriter not a great singer pretty good singer not a great songwriter you know how it is and to make it even kind of a little more swan song once i did get my first record deal with emi publishing with emi records which is a great scenario because the president was a guy named David Segerson. He produced Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes. He produced um, uh, The Bangles. The guy knew piano singer-songwriters with Tori, and he produced my record. So I had the president of the label producing my record, big launch, and then EMI Records closes and uh, within a week. So, you know, we've all heard those stories, but... After that, uh, I just kept grinding. I wrote Easy Tonight. Uh, my girlfriend-to-be wife was still pitching my songs and got a small deal from Aware Records uh, who said, you know, here's 50 grand. You got to go in the studio at midnight because we can't afford the day rate, but you're going to make a record. And for me, it was the holy grail that I could have one more shot at it. And uh, I just looked at it as, as a way to have some really good demos to show my grandkids one day. And... Easy Tonight became a number one AAA song, but sold no records. But was just, just, just enticing enough to Columbia Records to let let them uh, rationalize going for one more song. And they said, "What song do you want?" And I said, "Well, if I only have one more song, it's this Superman song because I see when I play it, people react to it." They said, "No way, it's a ballad. You got to have tempo, energy." And I said, "Well, I'll only get one song." This will be the song. And they said, okay, well, nice to know you. And then, you know, as I said, I, I've always felt, that, you know, if, you, if you're going to go down in flames, trust your gut, because at least you'll be able to sleep well at night. And luckily the song works. Now, when was the first time you heard yourself on Main Street Radio? Do you remember? Were you, <laughs> were you in L.A.? or? Oh, yeah. I was sitting on the 405 in traffic <laughs> with everybody else. And, uh, and I had a friend at a very local, back in the day, L.A. had some, pretty eclectic songwriter stations not not much anymore and i'd had a song i've written a song called last great american uh, about john mccain just 30 years ago and and i was driving down the freeway and and they said listen to the station um so i was listening for a few days and the song came on and and uh i you know i'd be lying if i said i didn't you know <laughs> shed a few tears 
uh, and I still, you know, I still pinch myself when I hear, you know, the riddle or hundred years, you know, in the dentist chair or something like that. It's still, uh, it still shocks me to this day, but yeah, there's, there's kind of nothing like hearing your song for the first time on the radio, especially after you've put 15 years of your life into it and so much, you know, blood, sweat and treasure. What's your, what is your songwriting process? Has it changed since you were young? I mean, it's probably, you know, cause you're doing both. It's you. You're yeah. singing it, it's the music, yeah. it's your lyrics. What comes first, and has it changed over the years? Well, typically, especially early on, you know, I was writing hundreds of songs a year. I knew that, you know, um, to get good at this, you gotta, you got to just keep grinding it out. I'd seen people shopping the same songs for, for three years, the same three songs. I'm like, if I'm going to get good at this, I need to explore different genres, I need to explore different styles. Certainly, you're imitating... Uh, your influences, trying to find your, your own voice. So initially, most of the songs would kind of start at the piano. The lyrics would come from there. But, but over time, I, I realized there's so many permutations to songwriting. And so I would start doing the Bernie Elton thing. I'd write a full lyric, and then I'd try to put music to it. I'd uh, look at uh, concepts, uh, events, observations, and start a song with that. Like 100 Years really came from a post-it note to myself of appreciate the moment. You have two little kids on your lap. Things are pretty good. Uh, you're future tripping. You're dwelling on the past. Maybe at least recognize the moment. So some of these epiphanies were not musical. They were more just kind of life moments that I recognized and uh, and wrote down. Um, there were some collaborations in there as well, You know, collaborating with other folks to try to bring a different twist. So I always tell songwriters, you know, try everything. There's a great song in every room if you could just hear it. So many songs of mine have just come from listening to a conversation as I walk by and then there's, I hear a, a phrase and that inspires a thought. So, uh, but at the end of the day, it's really about writing thousands of songs. So, you, you know, so you might connect on two or three of them. Um, and, and I'm not a prodigy talent, you know, I'm not Leonard Cohen, I'm not, you know, Elton and Bernie, I'm not Paul McCartney. You know, I have to write a lot of songs to get, you know, 100 songs to get people to get 10 for a record. So that's always been my process. You know, these days, of course, it's different. I'm not writing, you know, for hits or crafting records. Now it's more about if something moves me to write a song, then I write it. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to write just for the sake of writing. And it's kind of a it's kind of a comfortable place to be. Uh, there's not the pressure of having hits or record sales and just allows me to kind of speak my mind, and if people appreciate it, great. If if not, then you know maybe it's a little cathartic. Now, when you're writing all those songs, did you know if some were good or some were bad? I used to do stand-up comedy, and when you'd write a joke, yeah. and you'd know if a joke was good, and then you'd yeah. go on stage sometimes, and you knew that joke was good for you, maybe yeah. and ten other people, and you'd still do it because you're like, oh, those ten people are on the same page. But then you write <laughs> a joke, and you go, oh, this joke really sucks, so you wouldn't do it. Do you ever? And a joke's a lot easier to write than a song. Do you sit know. there? Well, if you sit down there and you, like, especially when you're younger and you're writing 100 songs, you start writing a song, start writing, and you get like three lines in and you go, eh, this sort of sucks. Do you, would you keep writing or would you toss it? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, you know, as an artist, you know, two in the morning every night, you know, we all think we just wrote Let It Be, right? And then you wake up. And certain songs you do think are like, wow, this is great. And, means a lot to you but until you play for an audience you really don't have a sense um over time especially after superman 
uh, I had a sense of what songs could could be popular. Not that they would be, but what they could be. How they were crafted. Was that voice that voice? Um, you know, after Superman, it took me almost three years to write the follow-up to Superman because I didn't want to just regurgitate the hit, write the same song. But it needed to be a song that was that guy, but different enough that work could stand alone. And, and 100 Years was that song. But a lot, there was hundreds of songs that I wrote and, and threw in the trash. You know, some, as you mentioned, some you kind of listen to the next day, you're like, nah, not even going to continue. Some you maybe finish, make a piano vocal, put it in the folder. Um, some you produce, you take all the way. And some you go back to, uh, you know, years later go, you know, there's a course there. So, so much of it is editing and having people you trust. But I, I really think until you play for an audience, you don't know. They are the greatest judge. They will tell you what you don't know. And that's why, I, again, I tell, tell young writers, you have to play shows. Uh, they, uh, they will be your teacher. They will be your muse. They will be your mentor. They will be your, your devil. Um, and uh, until you do that, you just never know. And even, you know, look, the record label thought the riddle would be bigger than 100 years in Superman. And it, it wasn't. Uh, they thought World would be a big hit. It wasn't. Um, Blood on My Hands, a song that never got one spin on the radio, was probably heard by more people uh, than every one of my songs except 100 Years in Superman. So it's just strange. You never know. But, you know, writing a lot, writing a lot, writing a lot for most of us, I think, is is the key. How important was YouTube to Blood on My Hands? How important is that for an artist now? Because, you know, I come from, and we're around the same age, we come from the video generation. And I talk to a lot yeah. of musicians who, like 80s musicians, who blew up because of the video, because MTV and that and that. And then it comes, people really don't make videos anymore, and they can make them for cheaper, but then YouTube comes along, and something can do great on YouTube, or something can get flop. How do you think it got such a viral following? Because it's had it's had such a big viewership. As you said, it's one of your most listened to songs. Well, I, I have to thank YouTube for taking it down. <laughs> that created more publicity than anything. Um, it, you know, part of it, part of the beautiful beautiful thing about social media is you can put it out there, and it can find its way, and. Uh, Blood on My Hands got a lot of coverage initially because it was such a visceral moment and nobody had really written that song and there were a lot of angry people and YouTube um, initially approved it. They said it was, you know, I, I put a graphic warning on the on the video um, but then when it started getting traction they took it down and there was this big hooba 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 but, um, but I do think it's one of the beauties of social media. Now there's a lot of downsides for musicians to to this age and, and social media but um, the fact that I you know I'm, I'm I'm making as we speak a one-year anniversary video of blood in my hands basically it was just statistics of where we are fortunately it, it's a lot of it was what we we feared would happen and I'll put that out and um, pe people who want to see it will see it some people will will like it some won't but it's just a way to get heard and seen without this filter of a record company who controls everything and it costs you a million dollars before you even out the door. So, um, and, and frankly with technology these days, we can make pretty, pretty compelling videos um, on our laptops and make great sounding records on our laptops. You know, I just got off the road of a six weeks tour, you know, with the guys in the band and me, we were recording, you know, live, 
live uh, footage and live audio. And within three days, we put out a live video of a song that sounds as good as anything we put out 20 years ago. So, you know, those things are beautiful. But, but yeah, you know, YouTube and the streaming and all that kind of levels the playing field. And frankly, without that, I probably... I don't, I don't know how people would find me because radio is not going to play these songs. So for me and these songs in particular, especially, especially the, the Can One Man Save the World video, which I think people see it, it's, it's very compelling. Um, that platform is critical for us. Um, and, you know, hopefully YouTube won't take the anniversary video down, <laughs> but we'll find out in a few days. How was the tour? How was being, was that your first time on the road since we shut down or had you been out before that? You know, I'd been doing quartet, string quartet shows, symphony shows. Uh, certainly, we were down for a year or two during COVID. I was doing some online stuff, some keynotes. But I hadn't gone out with the rock band in almost 10 years. And if there's any silver lining from this pandemic, I think all the things we've been talking about doing and not acting on, uh, we did. And uh, I, I miss playing with my guys. I miss playing the rock shows after doing all these kind of very intimate shows. And it was wonderful. Um, it was wonderful to have the audiences singing together. It was wonderful to have a guitar in my hand. Even more wonderful was the camaraderie I had with my friends, my colleagues, these incredible musicians who I hadn't played with in years. And to go across the country and to sing these songs and to sing Come One Man Save the World with the audio of the Ukrainian orchestra was incredibly moving um, for me and, and the audiences. And it was just wonderful. I, I think every band you probably talked to um, who took their touring and their 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 audiences uh, and the world we lived in pre-pandemic for granted uh, really have a, a different uh, perspective now on, on being able to play and have people come and share this communal experience of music. Um, certainly it's good for people's pocketbook books, but for me, for my kind of soul and personal wellness to go out and, and share these songs with, with, with people um, was wonderful. And uh, we're already trying to book one for next year and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll do the rock tour again, but I'll be out with the string quartet as well, because those folks again are just part of my family and, and, the experiences we provide there with, with, with some of the songs I think people enjoy as well. When did you start doing the string quartet thing? Was that something that you had an idea from the very beginning, or when did you start? No, it was about, geez, 10 years ago, I started getting asked to do these symphony shows, which, again, were just so stunning, you know, and inspiring to me, because I have so many songs that have these incredible arrangements, and I've worked with such amazing composers, and most of them are not songs I would play with the rock band, songs like Devil and the Wishing Well, Nobody, so two lights and so the orchestra allowed me to play these songs and then of course they added a whole new dimension to the hits so after doing a few of those i'm like this is so great and you know my audience these days they don't really want to go to the house of blues anymore they want to sit down they want to hear the stories um so i said why don't we do a broken down version of this symphony show so we arranged all the songs for quartet so we could do smaller markets uh, smaller venues and we started doing that. And frankly, that's really what we've done till this last tour. And it's it's also, again, so inspiring for me. I, I love the very intimate, you know, 500-seater shows. Uh, and uh, and again, we'll be doing that. But it was fun to uh, to rock the Casbah again and stomp around. And we closed our set with Bohemian Rhapsody. So, you know, to kind of have a little uh, 
a little vicarious living through Freddie and the boys. Uh, you know, we're not doing that with the quartet and run around the stage and breaking microphones and smashing guitars and throwing tambourines into the audience in our quartet shows. So, you know, we went back to the future a little bit. It's good for these old guys to like, you know, <laughs> try to try to get through it without, you know, ending up in traction. <laughs> when when did you start getting your stage chops? You know, in the, in the beginning, yeah. you were playing. You know, in, you're you're working, and that's like anything with comedy. You're playing yeah. in front of older comics to say you got to go on stage, even if there's three people. Yeah. You got to do it, and then all of a sudden, you're as you start developing, then all of a sudden you're in front of 300 people, and you're thinking, yeah. well, this should be a lot easier because there's so many people. But then you get nervous and you shut down a little bit. Yeah. When did you start getting your your stage legs? Because you're even though you're, it was a 15 year overnight success, then you started getting really big. Yeah, to be honest, it took a while. I wasn't very good, uh, even though I'd been you know grinding. I, I wasn't in a band, and I wasn't playing you know ten shows a week or a hundred shows a year. I had not gotten used to how to handle an audience, how to perform, and and so when Superman was a hit, and you see this all the time with young artists. Uh, all of a sudden, you have this big hit show and, and big, big big hit song, and so your third performance of your life is on the Tonight Show, and you're a deer in the headlights, and it doesn't go great, and you're nervous, and your hands are shaking. Um, so it really took me, I think, three or four years. I, I think it takes, you know, for around number a thousand shows, to you get comfortable where you're not thinking. Um, you have a certain um, ability to improvise. You understand if things don't go well how to to uh, to manipulate that to your advantage if the sound's not good uh, and also just playing just playing the songs the muscle memory and 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 how to entertain an audience beyond your songs and 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 then when I started doing keynotes I think that's really when I found my zone because so much of that has nothing to do with the songs you have to be funny you have to be witty you have to be emotional you have to tell stories um, you have to look people in the eye. You can't be reading from notes. And that I think incorporating into these latest shows, you know, to be honest with you, I think I've really kind of only really found my, <laughs> found my legs in the last few years um, where you kind of have that confidence and the nerves are not nerves, they're more just excitement. Um, but it takes a long time and some people are naturals. You know, I, I was not a natural and I'm still not a natural, but. But yeah, it took a long time, and uh, we're still always kind of trying to to figure out the next story, the next something new that that brings ad additional value and additional entertainment. Because people forget it, it's a, it's a show, it's an entertainment show. How did you get and, into keynote speaking? I know I know you do a lot of speaking. How did that come about? Because that's so important. You know, you, I've been to you know business events where the speaker just sucks. You know, yeah, and yeah. my friend is uh, Rich Redmond. He's Jason Aldean's drummer. And he goes up yeah. with his drum kit, and he has a crash course for success, and he gets a CEO up there, and they love it. How did you get into speaking, and is it easier because you are a recognizable name? Well, what makes it easy, what makes it um, work are two things. One is there's two songs people know, and very few artists, musicians do the keynote circuit. The other is my experience outside of the music business and the family business. We have a manufacturing business. I've been working there my whole life. Uh, started there at 15, working there through the, you know, my hit songs to this day. And that acumen and that experience is so different, 180 degrees from the music business 
that I can pull from that and I can speak to businesses, uh, charities, uh, organizations in a language they understand. And, and then I can relate my creativity experience, uh, my innovation, all the things that go into songwriting and play the songs uh, with, with tangents to whatever group I'm talking to. It started as I was hired to, to speak to a group called YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. Every city has a chapter and they're, they're CEOs under 40 years old, small groups. But because I could speak their language and had a sense of, of their, their business challenges and also their challenges as people under a lot of pressure, I could kind of tie that in with, with my experience as a songwriter and, and, and stories and my experience is running Precision Wire with my dad. So I think all of that kind of led to it working and then they hired me again and then I kind of became in demand. I don't do a ton of them because it's not my job, but the thing I love about them, um, and again, Steve, you'll appreciate that as someone who performs, you know, when, when you perform every night, sometimes it's hard to keep it fresh, you know, uh, singing Superman the 10,000th time, you telling the same joke the 10,000th time, but understanding that there's somebody in this audience that will only see you one time. And you got to be as good uh, for them now as you were when you played it for the first time. Um, the keynotes allow me to have something fresh. I always have to research who I'm talking to. I learn about their businesses. Many of them have become friends of mine. At that first event, there was a guy named Augie Nieto, um, who was this very successful entrepreneur. We eventually got ALS, uh, and I became a soldier in his army, and, and he's a great mentor to me, and I do a lot of work with ALS. So, so many blessings in my life of people that I meet and work with and mentor or mentored by or su support uh, my videos to, you know, to, to Ukraine um, have come out of my keynotes. So it's fun. It's interesting. It's different. It's new. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's something that keeps things going and, and interesting and fresh. We well, say you talked about ALS. I know you're very philanthropic. How did you get involved in that? And tell me some of the uh, charities you've worked with over the years. Yeah, you know, Augie's quest is, is Augie Nieto, uh, his fight against ALS, and uh, they've done amazing work over the last 15 years. He's one of the few miracles. He's 15 years with ALS, kind of like Stephen Hawking, but they've developed a drug that they think will slow the process of ALS that will probably apply to many muscular diseases, uh, neurological diseases. Of course, the, of course, the troops for me are a big passion. When Superman came out, I started getting a lot of emails from our troops and really saw how music matters in their wellness, which led to USO tours, the CD for the Troops project. I'm now an ambassador with Gary Sinise and his foundation. We do a lot of shows for our troops. So, so whether it's you know the USO or Wounded Warriors or Gary's foundation, most of the work I do with Gary's foundation uh, uh, these days. So you know those things have 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 been the blessings of my life. Um, autism, Superman was a very powerful song for autistic families. So the songs kind of lead me to these causes and I just try to help the best I can. And and if it brings a little, little light on their causes, their challenges, little money in their bank account, uh, kind of at this point, that's what it's all about. One final question. Yes, what's, sir. What's the future for you? What, 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 what do you got coming up in the next few years i mean what, what is i mean of course you want to do the the event in poland but what's your yeah. future do you have a certain like a plan or are you just going to say i'm going to see what happens well if you had asked me a year ago 
Uh, I'm sure I would have had some answer for you, but I never could have imagined, you know, helping evacuate people from Afghanistan and going to Ukraine. <laughs> so I don't know if any answer now means anything. Um, I certainly enjoy uh, and have kind of been re reborn as a songwriter and found a reason to do it. Um, I'm not going to be writing the song of the week, you know, for whatever cause. To me, that's that's not me and doesn't interest me. I've also really kind of um, be, be, been reinvigorated by touring. Um, and I'm, I'm also working with these incredible groups, you know, Save Our Allies. And, and um, I'm meeting with a U.S. senator tonight about Afghanistan. So I have these really interesting connections I didn't have a year ago. Um, so I imagine that will continue. Where it goes, I don't know. I hope I'm not in Taiwan writing a song. And then, of course, there's everything outside of music. You know, our family business. My dad's 84, so we're, you know, we're trying to keep that going. It's tough here in California to run any kind of business, so we want to keep Precision Wire for for my children and and frankly the 300 employees and their families that that we've worked with for a generation and are part of my family. So a lot of what I'll be doing has nothing to do with music and going on my 25th anniversary trip with my wife in a couple of weeks. So. Uh, trying to fit in some, some, some happy life memories as well. But it's very uncertain times. I think the most uncertain in my life. And there's so many historic, consequential things happening. Uh, I think it's important that, that at least I participate the best way I can and at least try to focus and shine the spotlight on some, some causes and some heroic people and, frankly, some things I think that uh, we're not addressing in the way we should in this country. So... I guess that's a long answer. That means I don't know. <laughs> well, people, go check out uh, John's website, fiveforfighting.com. At Twitter, you're at John Andrasik, right? Yes, well, sir. Yeah. For people, that's J-O-H-N-O-N-D-R-A-S-I-K. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. You can follow me on Instagram, at Cooper Talk one Email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.